Welcome to Hub History, the show where we share our favorite stories from Boston history. This is episode 78, Organized Crime Classics. Hi, I'm Jake. Boston's history with gangsters and goons goes far beyond the legacy of Whitey Bulger. This week, we're featuring three stories from our back catalog about very different aspects of organized crime in Boston. We'll be discussing Charles King Solomon's reign in the South End, the Tong Wars place in Chinatown history, and the Brinks robbery in the North End, which was known as the crime of the century. But before we talk about hits and heists, it's time to take a look at this week's featured historic site and upcoming event. This week, we're featuring the Boston Tea Party Ships and Museum, honoring an event that was both organized and criminal. From the museum's website, At the Boston Tea Party Ships and Museum, you can be part of the famous event that forever changed the course of American history. Historical interpreters, interactive exhibits, full-scale restored 18th-century sailing vessels, historic artifacts, and the award-winning multi-sensory documentary, Let It Begin Here, are just a taste of what you will experience during your visit. Meet the courageous men and women responsible for this historic act of defiance and learn what role you will play in the single most important event leading up to the American Revolution. Complement your experience with Abigail's Tea Room, where you can enjoy freshly baked goods, savory lunch items, historically inspired spirits, and literally taste history by sampling the five teas thrown overboard at the Boston Tea Party. Each fully immersive tour will last approximately one hour and is a fully guided experience throughout the ships and museum. Your 18th century host will lead you through an interactive colonial town meeting, onto one of our ships to dump the tea, and through the museum experience as you discover what happened during the single most important event leading up to the American Revolution. The museum opened in 1973 just in time for the bicentennial celebrations, and those of you who have been in Boston for a while will remember that the first museum was completely destroyed by fire in 2001. The Shipson Museum you can visit today reopened in 2012 in Fort Point Channel, just a few hundred yards from the site of the Tea Party. Admission is $30 for adults and $18 for children ages 5 to 12. Several combination packages are available online if you plan to visit other sites and museums in Boston. We'll post a link in this week's show notes. And for our upcoming event this week, we're featuring Boston by Foot's May Tour of the Month, The Ladder Blocks Tour. The online description tells us, Boston's ladder blocks are bounded by Washington and Tremont streets south of School Street. The streets that connect them create a street grid shaped like a ladder, giving the district the name by which it was once known. These blocks have a rich history, from life as a residential neighborhood to a hub of small specialty retail. In this walk, we trace the architectural and social history of the ladder blocks as a seedbed of Boston's intellectual identity and the nexus of its cultural character. The scale and character of this neighborhood and many of its streets currently are under threat, as the ladder blocks face the pressure of large-scale redevelopment. Connecting the Theater District and the Central Business District, this walk includes the Temple Place Historic District, arts venues from the Paramount Theater to the Orpheum, and historically significant buildings from the Masonic Temple to the Parker House Hotel. This tour is presented in partnership with the Boston Preservation Alliance, a nonprofit organization that protects and improves the quality of Boston's distinct architectural heritage through advocacy and education. The Alliance is celebrating its 40th anniversary in 2018. The tour will be available to non-Boston by Foot members on Sunday, May 27th at 2 p.m. But we do recommend becoming a member this summer to take advantage of the dozens of tours Boston by Foot offers. 
Now, let's turn to our three featured stories, starting with the Brinks heist. Boston is, of course, no stranger to organized crime. Highlights include the decades-long saga of Whitey Bulger, the continuing quest to recover artwork stolen from the Gardner Museum, and King Solomon's reign in the South End, discussed in episode 38. Today, we'll dig into the Brinks robbery in 1950. Brinks is an armored car service, still in business today. Essentially, businesses use them to transport money. If you own a bar or a convenience store or some other type of business that brings in a lot of cash, you might hire Brinks to do regular pickups so you don't have to run the risks associated with going to the bank with $20,000 in your pocket. In the era of the robbery, before the days of direct deposit, Brinks would also deliver the payroll to factories. The Brinks building, which sat on the corner of Prince and Commercial Streets, was robbed on January 17, 1950. The 11-member gang made off with $2.7 million in cash, checks, and securities. That's $27 million in today's money. The tale that unfolds will really sound like a new installment of Ocean's Eleven, so let's imagine George Clooney in the role of ringleader Joseph Big Joe McGinnis. Of course, this kind of thing isn't pulled off on a whim, and it certainly isn't accomplished by one person. According to Joseph Spex O'Keefe, the filthy rat, Big Joe began planning and assembling his crew about two years before the robbery. He started by enlisting Spex, Anthony Fats Pino, and Stanley Gus Guskiera. They meticulously observed the employees' daily routine from an apartment that they rented in the building across the street learning the patterns, and identifying the best times to enter the building undetected. Spex and Gus first entered the building by picking the outside lock with an ice pick and the inner door with a piece of plastic. They then removed the cylinders from the five locks so that a locksmith could make duplicate keys for them, replacing the cylinders before the morning shift arrived, and with that they could come and go as they pleased. Once this was done, Fats recruited seven other men. Vincent Costa, Michael Vincent Gagan, Thomas Sandy Francis Richardson, Adolph Jazz Maffey, Henry Conan, James Faherty, and Joseph Banfield. Members of the crew went into the building several times after hours to memorize the layout and practice their planned entrance and escape. Specs and Gus even broke into an alarm company in Boston to review the plans of the security system inside the Brinks building, returning the plans before the theft was noticed. With all of this buildup, you can understand why this story was made into a movie. Absolutely, and the tension is still building. After six aborted attempts, they decided that the time was right. Those who were to carry out the plan donned clothing similar to that of a Brinks uniform with navy peacoats and chauffeur's caps along with rubber Halloween masks, gloves, and rubber-soled shoes. While two remained in the getaway car, seven others entered the building at 6.55 p.m. With their copied keys, they easily came to the second floor through locked doors and surprised, bound, and gagged five Brinks employees who were storing and counting money. Surprisingly, not a shot was fired, no blood was shed. The robbers actually said, This is a stick-up, and they met no opposition. Other than the payroll for GE, which was in a box that they couldn't open, everything was quickly collected and the crew walked out at 7.30 p.m. 
they committed what was the biggest robbery in U.S. history in just 35 minutes. They immediately split up, established alibis, and agreed not to touch the money for six years, after which the statute of limitations would expire. Boston police and the FBI rounded up every suspect they could find. Rope, adhesive tape, one hat, and a witness observing the getaway were the only initial pieces of evidence. In addition to interviewing hundreds of neighbors, a systematic check of current and past Brinks employees was undertaken, building personnel were questioned, and salesmen, messengers, and others who visited Brinks were investigated. The company offered a $100,000 reward, but hundreds of leads only led to dead ends. A profile on the FBI's website details the biggest lead in those early months. Through the interviews of persons in the vicinity of the Brinks offices on the evening of January 17, 1950, the FBI learned that a 1949 green Ford stake body truck with a canvas top had been parked near the Prince Street door of Brinks at approximately the time of the robbery. From the size of the loot and the number of the men involved, it was logical that the gang might have used a truck. This lead was pursued intensively. On March 4th, pieces of an identical truck were found at a dump in Stoughton, Massachusetts. An acetylene torch had been used to cut up the truck, and it appeared that a sledgehammer also had been used to smash many of the heavy parts, such as the motor. The truck pieces were concealed in fiber bags when found. Had the ground not been frozen, the person or persons who abandoned the bags probably would have attempted to bury them. The truck found at the dump had been reported stolen by a Ford dealer near Fenway Park in Boston on November 3, 1949. All efforts to identify the persons responsible for the theft and the persons who had cut up the truck were unsuccessful. The fiber bags used to conceal the pieces were identified as having been used as containers for beef bones shipped from South America to a gelatin manufacturing company in Massachusetts. Thorough inquiries were made concerning the disposition of the bags after their receipt by the Massachusetts firm. This phase of the investigation was pursued exhaustively. It proved unproductive. But, as the case went cold, there was one thing that Big Joe and Fats couldn't plan for. Something that was completely beyond their control. It's hard enough to keep a secret and maintain trust between two people. And I gotta tell you, if I'm one of those two people, the secret probably isn't going to be kept. So, with 11 people, it was destined for failure. Just six months later in June, Specs and Gus were arrested in Pennsylvania for a burglary. Apparently, their share of the $20 million wasn't enough. Specs was sentenced to three years in jail, and Gus landed with a 5-20 to 20 year sentence. And here, the plot thickens. Specs had given his share of the money to Jazz for safekeeping before both he and Gus demanded more money from Fats and Big Joe to fight their convictions. Informants passed this tip to the police, and FBI agents tried to talk to Specs and Gus, but they denied any knowledge of the Brinks robbery. Upon his release, Specs was taken to trial for another burglary and parole violations, and was released on a bail of $17,000. He never saw his portion of the loot after he gave it to Jazz, who ended up doing time for tax evasion. In need of money, he kidnapped Costa and demanded ransom. Fats paid a small ransom, but then decided that things were way out of hand and that Specs needed to be killed. 
After some failed attempts, he hired Elmer Trigger Burke. Trigger shot Specs on June 16, 1954, seriously wounding, but failing to kill him. Specs went off the grid after he was wounded, and then on August 1, 1954, he was arrested and turned over to the Boston police, who held him for violating probation on a gun-carrying charge. He was sentenced on August 5, 1954, to serve 27 months in prison. As a protective measure, he was incarcerated in the Hampton County Jail at Springfield, rather than the Suffolk County Jail in Boston. On August 3rd, his associate, who had assisted him in holding Costa for ransom, disappeared. Combined, these events created a resentment that would eventually lead Specs to turn. As the FBI tells it, During an interview with him in the jail at Springfield in October, special agents found that the plight of the missing Boston racketeer was weighing on Specs' mind. In December, he indicated to the agents that Fats could look for rough treatment if he again was released. From his cell in Springfield, O'Keefe wrote bitter letters to members of the Brinks gang and persisted in his demands for money. The conviction for burglary in McKean County, Pennsylvania still hung over his head, and legal fees remained to be paid. During 1955, O'Keefe carefully pondered his position. It appeared to him that he would spend his remaining days in prison while his co-conspirators would have many years to enjoy the luxuries of life. Even if released, he thought, his days were numbered. There had been three attempts on his life in June 1954, and his frustrated assassins undoubtedly were waiting for him to return to Boston. Evidently resigned to long years in prison, or a short life on the outside, O'Keefe grew increasingly bitter toward his old associates. Through long weeks of empty promises of assistance, and deliberate stalling by the gang members, he began to realize that his threats were falling on deaf ears. As long as he was in prison, he could do no physical harm to his Boston criminal associates, and the gang felt that the chances of his talking were negligible because he would be implicated in the Brinks robbery along with the others. Two days after Christmas of 1955, FBI agents paid another visit to O'Keefe. After a period of hostility, he began to display a friendly attitude. Interviewed again on December 28th, he talked somewhat more freely, and it was obvious that the agents were gradually winning his respect and confidence. At 4.20 p.m. on January 6th, 1956, O'Keefe made the final decision. He was through with Pino, Baker, McInnes, Moffey, and the other Brinks conspirators who had turned against him. All right, he told two FBI agents, what do you want to know? On January 12th, 1956, just five days before the statute of limitations was set to run out, the FBI arrested Baker, Costa, Gagan, Jazz, Big Joe, and Fats. Specs pled guilty on January 18th. They apprehended Faraday and Sandy on May 16th, and Gus died on July 9th. Banfield was already dead. The trial began on August 6, 1956. Eight of the gang members received maximum sentences of life imprisonment. All were paroled by 1971, except Big Joe, who died in prison. Specs received four years and was released in 1960. At the end of the day, the money was never recovered. A lead occurred in June 1956, when a $10 bill from the robbery was passed to an arcade employee in Baltimore. The money was eventually traced to an office building in Boston, on Tremont Street, concealed inside a wall. About $52,000 in Brink's money was recovered from that building, just about 2% of the loot. Next up, 
we introduce Charles King Solomon, also known as Boston Charlie, whose criminal enterprise placed him at the head of organized crime in Boston throughout the Prohibition era. He reached influence at the national level, set policies in play that led to the tragedy at the Coconut Grove, and in death, left a wake that may have led to the rise of Whitey Bulger. Unfortunately, very little is known of Charles King Solomon's early life. He was a Jewish-Russian immigrant who was born sometime around 1884. It's unclear when exactly his family immigrated and whether they settled in the West End of Boston initially or in Salem. To give some context, it's worth noting that the Solomons were part of a wave of immigration that began with the Irish in the 1840s, but a generation later turned to a predominantly Jewish population by the 1880s. While we have no reflection from King Solomon on his humble roots and his migration to Boston, Mary Anton, a Jewish-Russian immigrant who grew up in the South End, tells of this experience in her book The Promised Land. In it, she reflects on the opportunities afforded to Jewish immigrants in Boston as opposed to the oppression experienced in Russia. In one passage, she describes visiting the Boston Public Library and reading the inscription, Built by the people, free to all. She writes that an outcast should become a privileged citizen, that a beggar should dwell in a palace. This was a romance more thrilling than any poet ever sung. This is the romance that became King Solomon's life. His father purchased a theater, which allowed him to grow up middle class. In his teens, he worked as a counterman in his uncle's restaurant. However, by his early 20s, he became involved in prostitution, fencing, and bail bonding. His police record began in 1911, at roughly age 27, for operating a house of ill repute. Arrested 21 times, he only went to prison once, for suborning perjury when he was on trial for narcotics charges. He was sentenced to five years, but was released after 13 months. The influx of cash from his illegal activities allowed him to invent himself as a successful businessman who had come to own at least three Boston theaters, several nightclubs, restaurants in neighboring towns, a hotel in New York, a factory in Brooklyn, and a nightclub in Montreal. The king became a local celebrity, dashing, charming, polite, and always elegantly dressed when he appeared at his clubs with vaudeville stars. This lifestyle came on the wave of Prohibition in 1920, which provided the perfect storm for organized crime to cement itself in cities across America. Prior to Prohibition, Mafia groups limited their activities to prostitution, gambling, and theft, similar to Solomon's early crime activities. When bootlegging emerged in response to a profitable black market for alcohol, the opportunities for financial gain were immense. Prices for alcohol increased significantly, and so did demand. In the previous saloon culture, women rarely drank in public, aside from the adventuresses of the night. With the rise of the speakeasy, more and more women began to tipple without judgment. Now it was wrong for everybody to drink, so why not join the fun? While Boston doesn't have the same gangster reputation as New York or Chicago, the black market was flourishing here too. Within a few years of the start of Prohibition, King Solomon controlled the majority of illegal gambling and drug trade such as cocaine and morphine. Solomon acquired the Coconut Grove Nightclub in 1931, which became the jewel in his crown. The club opened in 1927 as a partnership between two orchestra leaders. Solomon came on to provide financing and the connections necessary to bring in liquor. Always focused on the bottom line, it was Solomon who instituted the practice of locking the club doors from the inside. This led to horrific tragedy when the club caught fire in 1942, which we'll discuss in next week's episode. The King's Empire, by this time, hinged on bootlegging, or rum running. He developed relationships with Canadian distillers, as well as manufacturers from Europe and the Caribbean. 
He had significant connections to the Bronfman family, the owners of the Seagram's Distillery in Montreal, also with Russian Jewish ancestry. Leaving little outside his control, Solomon owned a fleet of boats that received their orders from radio stations he operated along the coast. While we couldn't track down details as to how exactly his stations operated, we did discover an interesting method used by Roy Olmsted, king of the Puget Sound bootleggers. In 1924, Roy and his Canadian wife Elise started Seattle radio station KFQX, with studios built in the Smith Tower in Pioneer Square, which were rarely used. For the most part, Elise ran the station out of their home. And typical of stations at the time, it had a variety format. The most popular program was Aunt Vivian, where Elise, as Aunt Vivian, read bedtime stories for children beginning at 7.15 at night. Within the stories, she inserted coded language as signals for her husband's bootlegging network. Now, King Solomon reached enough prominence on the national level to be accepted into the Big Seven Group, an East Coast criminal organization active during Prohibition. The group initially consisted of seven Jewish, Italian, and Irish-American gangs on the East Coast. Following the announcement of the Volstead Act in 1919 to carry out the 18th Amendment, bootlegging led to gang wars in major cities across the country. The steady flow of shootouts and bombings cost the bosses money, creating the need for the Big Seven to serve as a centralized office of sorts, ensuring a fair distribution of bootleg liquor, reducing costs for supplies, and protecting shipments. I'm going to read this list of the original members, really just because I like saying their names so much. We had Enoch Nucky Johnson, Abner Longies Willman, Moe Dallitz, Waxy Gordon, Harry Nig Rosen, Danny Walsh, and Johnny Torrio. King Solomon joined with a later wave of members as violence was beginning to lessen in the Mid-Atlantic area. The Big Seven group prompted the gathering known as the Atlantic City Conference in May of 1929, which King Solomon attended, one of a handful of delegates from Boston. The conference was hosted by Meyer Lansky, the Jewish-American crime syndicate boss, Italian-American mobster Johnny Torrio, Charlie Lucky Luciano, and Frank Costello. The organizer was Atlantic City and South Jersey crime boss Enoch Nucky Johnson, who provided the hotel accommodations, food and entertainment for all, and made a guarantee of no police interference. No formal records of attendance were kept, but it was guessed to be well over 50, from cities as far away as Kansas City and New Orleans. Al Capone himself was in attendance. King Solomon rubbed shoulders with the best in the business. But there were some notable absences. Two of the underworld's most powerful leaders, Giuseppe Joe the Boss Masseria and Salvatore Maranzano of New York, were not invited. The old guard maintained traditional old world ideals and business practices that restricted them from working with other ethnic gangs outside of the Italian underworld, which ran counter to the ideals and principles that the leaders such as Luciano and Torrio wished to express to the other delegates in Atlantic City. We don't know where King Solomon lodged in Atlantic City, but the conference started off with an embarrassing gaffe. Nucky registered the incoming guests at the exclusive Atlantic City Breakers Hotel along the boardwalk, which then was restricted to white Anglo-Saxon Protestant clients. King Solomon would not have been welcome there, and neither was Al Capone. Pretty quickly, the hotel's management found out that multiple guests were trying to check in with Anglo-Saxon aliases, and some delegates were refused admittance. When Nucky heard about the problem, he rushed to the hotel, 
and Al Capone went on a tear, raging at Nucky Johnson for not making the proper arrangements. Eventually, other accommodations were found. Interestingly, not all conference business was conducted in secret in dark hotel suites. Some discussions were held out in the open, with delegates taking off their shoes and socks and strolling along the beach. Local newspapers printed photos of Al Capone and some of the other prominent delegates as they roamed the boardwalk. It turns out that everybody likes a beach vacation. King Solomon's luck began to run dry when he faced a federal indictment for bootlegging in Brooklyn in January of 1933. He was believed to be at the center of a $14 million whiskey running operation, along with three other men. He paid $5,000 in bail and was on his way. Just a few weeks later, on January 24th, he finished up a night at the Coconut Grove and pocketed the night's take of $4,600, which, as a side note, is $87,000 in today's money. That's one night's income from one club. He was on the outs with his girlfriend, Dot England, so he took a car with two dancers and his band leader to the Cotton Club on Tremont Street near Mass Ave. The club was still hopping at 3.30 a.m. when he got up to use the men's room. A few men who had been drinking at the bar followed him in, and witnesses reported hearing an argument straight from the cheesiest gangster movie. Something about a double-crossing, no-good rap followed by Solomon saying, You got my role, now what do you want? A voice replied, You've had this coming for a long time. And shots were fired and the men fled. Solomon staggered out of the bathroom, bleeding from the neck, chest, and abdomen, and proclaiming, The rats got me! He died at Boston City Hospital, now Boston Medical Center, without naming his killers. It's a change, you filthy animal! His wake was that of a celebrity, not a criminal, with over 3,000 people paying their respects at his home in Brookline. The Boston Globe reported, Bullets sang the requiem of King Solomon yesterday and wiped forever from his face the smile that thousands knew. Police charged gangsters James H. Scully, John T. O'Donnell, John J. Burke, James Skeets Coyne, and Frank Carlonis in connection with the murder. Burke, O'Donnell, and Carlonis were tried first and found not guilty. Coyne was an ex-con and had a loose connection to Solomon, as he had worked as a doorman at the Cotton Club. He pled guilty to manslaughter and robbery, and was sentenced to 10 to 20 years in prison. And nine months later, Scully was arrested and eventually convicted of robbing Solomon the night that he was murdered. He was sentenced to 16 to 20 years in prison. It's worth noting that two months after King Solomon's death, another of the men indicted in the whiskey-running ring was also killed, leading some to speculate that these murders were related and carried out to prevent the two from turning for the prosecution. King Solomon's death may have had some far-reaching consequences in Boston history. Adam Gaffin of the blog Universal Hub explains it this way. Although Boston had had mafiosi since the early part of the century, it was really the Irish and the Jews who ran organized crime in the city. But Solomon's death, coupled with the equally violent end of the head of the Irish-led Gustin Gang in South Boston two years earlier, ended any serious obstacles to the takeover of Boston racketeering by the capos of the North End, initially led by Philip Bucola and later Ray Patriarca. Eventually, the FBI decided it had to do something about Patriarca. The Irish gangs never really went away, and after Somerville's Winter Hill Gang destroyed the Charlestown Gang, the FBI made its pact with the devil Whitey Bulger. 
In exchange for ratting out the Italians, the government let Bulger do anything he wanted, including murdering at least 19 people, from people he thought were snitching on him to an ex-girlfriend. And finally, we discussed the early history of Boston's Chinatown, two murders that took place there at the turn of the 20th century, and a terrifying crackdown on Chinese Americans in Boston that sparked an international incident and has parallels in today's headlines. On a warm summer evening in 1907, businesses were closing up shop for the day. In the narrow streets and alleyways of Boston's Chinatown, people leaned in doorways smoking or gathered on stoops to chat. In the tiny T-shaped alley called Oxford Street, a group of men quietly took their prearranged positions and waited for a signal. Against the backdrop of this ordinary streetscape, somebody lit a string of firecrackers. This wasn't entirely unheard of in Chinatown, but these firecrackers were a signal. As the firecrackers went off, the group loitering on Oxford Street pulled out pistols and began firing indiscriminately into the crowd of people mingling in the evening air. Panic immediately followed, with people diving for cover, fleeing into stores, or running for safety on Harrison Street. Within seconds, three men were killed, and seven more fell wounded. The shooters immediately fled, blending into the frightened crowd that was racing away from the scene. As every available Boston police unit converged on Chinatown, a rumor began to spread. It said that the shooters were paid thugs, hatchet men organized by the Hip Sing Tong to demonstrate why businesses should be paying protection money to the Tong. While ambulances were still on the scene and undertakers' wagons were collecting the bodies, the police were already going door-to-door in Chinatown. They kicked in doors, searching for anyone who might be a witness or a suspect with a connection to the Hip Sing Tong. Throughout Chinatown, people feared that they were about to witness a repeat of the traumatic police raids that had followed an earlier shooting in 1903. Our story begins long before the bullets began to fly on that August evening. Boston's Chinatown neighborhood has its roots in the first large-scale wave of Chinese Americans to settle in Boston in 1874. They were part of a group of low-wage workers who had been brought from San Francisco to North Adams to work as scabs during a garment worker strike in 1870. After the strike was over, the immigrant workers could no longer count on finding work in North Adams, so many of them came to Boston. Here, they found employment in the city's garment district and started a community centered around the corner of Harrison and Beach that was at first known as Boston's Chinese Colony. The population grew quickly in the 1870s as more Chinese Americans moved to Boston to seek employment. The first Chinese restaurant, Hong Far Lo, opened in 1875. Also during the 1870s, laundries became an increasingly important industry for Chinese immigrants, as many other types of businesses began to discriminate against them. Soon, one in every four Chinese American men would be employed in the laundry business. As Chinese American immigrants moved across the nation from west to east, anti-Chinese sentiment and discrimination followed close behind. Chinese immigration to the west coast had ramped up quickly during the California gold rush of the 1850s, and demand for Chinese-American laborers remained high during the railroad boom of the 1860s. However, after the Civil War, the country settled into an economic recession. During these hard times, populist politicians scapegoated these immigrants as the cause of low wages among white American workers. Sounds pretty familiar. Finally, in 1882, Congress passed the Chinese Exclusion Act. 
While immigration from other nations would be essentially unregulated until the 1920s, this new law enacted a 10-year prohibition on anyone from China who might be employed as a laborer moving to the U.S. In practice, it was almost impossible to prove one's employment status, so immigration was frozen. The Chinese-American community in Boston at that time was made up overwhelmingly of young male workers, who then faced a devastating choice. Leave the U.S. and probably never be allowed to return to their homes and jobs here, or stay and risk never seeing their families again. Over the next several years, amendments tightened the law, and then in 1892 the Geary Act renewed and extended it for another ten years. Not only was immigration prohibited under the Geary Act, but anyone of Chinese descent in the U.S. was required to carry identification papers at all times. Their right of habeas corpus was revoked, and two white witnesses were required to swear to their immigration status if there was any dispute. Before it expired in 1902, the Geary Act would be indefinitely renewed. In the 1930s, elements of the law were relaxed to allow wives and families of Chinese Americans already in the U.S. to join them, and the law was allowed to expire in 1943, while the Republic of China was fighting as a valuable ally against the Japanese Empire in the Pacific Theater. Another murder in Boston's Chinatown provided the nominal excuse for a combined raid by Boston police and the U.S. Immigration Bureau in 1903. The raid, which indiscriminately scooped up anyone of Chinese descent, regardless of their immigration status, became so notorious that it led to a nationwide boycott of American-made goods in China for the next two years. Judge William Emmons had just been named Boston Police Commissioner, and he vowed to crack down on the gang violence, gambling, and opium dens that he claimed had taken over the city's Chinatown. On October 2nd, 1903, Wang Yak Chong was ambushed and killed by two men in Chinatown in an attack that wounded two others. Wang, who owned a business in Roslindale, was reported to be a member of the Hip Sing Tong. His two assailants, Wang Ching and Charlie Chin, were said to belong to the rival An Liang Tong. Tongs were organizations that hovered somewhere between secret societies and benevolent associations. They originated in mainland China and found particularly fertile soil in the eastern United States. As Chinese Americans moved further from the West Coast and the large immigrant communities there, they found more reasons to rely on the Tongs for support. Unfortunately, the Tongs were also far from their traditional power bases in China, and in Boston and New York, they began operating as organized crime syndicates. The Tongs ran gambling and opium dens, and in a situation where the Chinese Exclusion Act prevented most ethnically Chinese women from coming to the United States, they operated successful prostitution rings. It was against this background that Wang's murder played out. One early news report said that he was planning to sell his business and renounce the Hip Sing Tong, and that he was killed out of fear that he would betray the Tong's secrets. Most news reports, though, say that he was at the center of a dispute over gambling debts between the Hip Sings and the An Liang Tong. The assassins, Wang Ching and Charlie Chin, were armed with Colt and Ivor Johnson revolvers. When he was arrested, Wang Ching was found to be wearing elaborate body armor concealed beneath his clothes. It was made up of many small pieces of sheet steel, about two inches square and a sixteenth of an inch thick, joined by little bands of copper wire. One of the two men was found with an elaborate, traditional Chinese hunting axe, 
This fed White Boston's fear of Chinese-American gangsters, as it was associated with Tong assassins, hence the term hatchet men. This was exactly the pretext that the Boston Police Department had been looking for. As Captain Lawrence Kane, the department's commander in Chinatown, said, It is the first time that such a bloody feud is broken out among the Chinese in Boston. We must check it. That is the reason we have had to resort to such extreme measures. The community must be protected from such high-handed acts. We intend to take every precaution, even if innocent men are brought to the station. Wang Yak Chong's funeral was held on October 11th, and soon after he was buried at Mount Hope Cemetery, the police began breaking down doors in Chinatown. Because the two hatchetmen were rumored to belong to the Onleong Tong, the raids tended to target them. However, doubt is cast on this focus on the Onleongs, and indeed their role in the murder itself, by persistent rumors that Police Commissioner Emmons had struck a deal with the Hip Sing Tong. In a story reminiscent of law enforcement's protection deal with Whitey Bulger's Winter Hill Gang nearly a century later, author Alan Rogers explains the situation. In fact, Emmons apparently made a corrupt bargain with the Hip Sing Tong. In exchange for information about illegal activities conducted by the On Leong Tong, the Boston police left Hip Sing alone. Throughout the summer and fall of 1903, for example, the police arrested scores of On Leong Tong members for gambling, but not a single member of Hip Sing. This tactic led directly to the violence. While the raids may have been nominally targeted at On Leong, in reality they became a generalized roundup of Chinese Americans. The BPD and immigration authorities fanned out through the neighborhood and swept up hundreds of ethnically Chinese Bostonians, regardless of any complicity in the shootings, Tong affiliation, immigration status, or possession of the required documentation. George Billings, immigration commissioner for the Port of Boston, made it clear that the raids were deliberately indiscriminate. We have had it in our mind for a long time to do something of this sort. We are satisfied that there are many unregistered Chinese in the city and in other places in New England. It required something like the murder of Wong, however, to give us the proper excuse for taking action. I think we have done our job pretty thoroughly tonight. I have no doubt that many of the Chinese we took tonight have their papers. They should have had them in their possession. Those who left them in their homes will have an opportunity tomorrow to produce them. If they have not got their papers, they will be deported. The Boston Herald describes the raids in the typically racist language of the day. The officers dragged the frightened Chinamen out from under beds, from behind boxes and doors, and from all conceivable places of concealment. They were all driven down the winding stairways to the big marble hallway at the street entrance and huddled together like panting sheep. The jabbering was deafening and bewildering. In the Atlantic, in 1906, former Secretary of State John W. Foster used more measured tones to recall a notorious case which occurred not on the sandlots of California, nor under the auspices of labor agitators, but in the enlightened city of Boston and under the conduct of federal officials. The police and immigration officials fell upon their victims without giving a word of warning. The clubs, restaurants, other public places where the Chinese congregated, and private houses were surrounded. Every avenue of escape was blocked. To those seized, no warrant for arrest or other paper was read or shown. 
Every Chinese who did not at once produce his certificate of residence was taken in charge, and the unfortunate ones were rushed off to the federal building without further ceremony. There was no respect of persons with the officials. They treated merchants and laborers alike. In many cases, no demand was made for certificates. The captives were dragged off to imprisonment, and in some instances, the demand was not made till late at night or the next morning, when the certificates were in the possession of the victims at the time of their seizure. By morning, 234 men were being held in custody. 122 were released within 24 hours, after producing the documents required under the Geary Act. 49 were released on bail in the first few days, and 11 were held in jail for many days until they could produce their documentation. Some of these men were residents from the suburbs who had been in town for the day and had to wait for friends or trusted acquaintances to find and produce their documents. Among those who were held the longest were at least two American citizens of Chinese descent. On October 16th, several hundred Bostonians gathered to protest at Faneuil Hall. William Lloyd Garrison Jr., son of the famous abolitionist, gave the first address. We are gathered to protest against the recent flagrant outrage upon ourselves and upon the fair fame of the city. It is a menace to constitutional government. A few Orientals serve today as a pretext for this encroachment of a power hostile to democratic institutions. Tomorrow the victims may be Negroes or Jews. The preliminary excuse for the brutality in Chinatown was the fact of a single and exceptional murder of one Chinaman by another, a crime almost of daily occurrence in other parts of the city among natives and foreigners. The pretense of the police cloaked a purpose to round up the Chinese colony and capture the pitiful number who were unable to produce on the instant their certificates. The chattel tag which the Great Republic, founded by immigrants from oppression, exacts of these later refugees. Imagine the tables turned and American citizens in China corralled and dragged into confinement upon suspicion. The apathetic deadness of Boston would burst into volcanic wrath and the navy yard bristle with activity. Or suppose it descent upon the Italian quarter were planned by the police, inspired by federal authority. Even let the Japanese be the intended victims. Strenuous and inflated as is our new world power, the United States would shrink from the attempt. The eagle seeks a helpless quarry. Despite the protest, 50 Chinese Americans were deported. It remains unclear whether all, or indeed any of them, were residing in the U.S. without registering themselves with the authorities. Another 150 would leave the city by train before the end of October of 1903. It was the largest exodus of Chinese Americans from the area at any one time up to that point, and it was sparked by the raid and the ensuing insecurity ethnically Chinese people felt in Boston afterwards. The population of Boston's Chinatown had been somewhere around 600 before the raids. Reducing that number by a third was seen as a great success by the officials, who were dead set on ridding the city and nation of Chinese immigrants. One of the Chinese Americans who left Boston after the raids was Fang Shui Wai. He moved to the Philippines and then later went back to China. His experiences with the Boston raid in particular, and life under the Chinese Exclusion Act in general, had radicalized Fang. When he arrived back in China, he published a book describing and denouncing the discrimination Chinese immigrants faced in America. In May 1905, 
The Shanghai Chamber of Commerce began advocating for a boycott of American-made goods in protest of the treatment of Chinese Americans. On July 16th, Feng Shuawei committed suicide in front of the American consulate in Shanghai. Days later, the boycott formally began, with Feng seen as a martyr to the boycott and the rising spirit of Chinese nationalism it encouraged. His memorial service stretched over three days, attracting thousands of mourners and orators who promoted the boycott. In response to the boycott, President Theodore Roosevelt would say, We cannot expect China to do us justice unless we do China justice. The chief cause in bringing about the boycott of our goods in China was undoubtedly our attitude toward the Chinese who come to this country. Our laws and treaties should be so framed as to guarantee to all Chinamen save for the exception of the coolie class, the same right of entry to this country and the same treatment while here, as is guaranteed to citizens of any other nation. By executive action, I am as rapidly as possible putting a stop to the abuses which have grown up during many years in the administration of this exclusion law. In the wake of the raids, Chinatown was bent, but not broken. Even the Tongs remained in Boston, and retained enough power to spark the massacre on Oxford Street in August of 1907. By the morning after the shooting, police had five members of the Hip Sing Tong in custody, and the next day they arrested five more. Among the latter arrests was a businessman named Wary Charles. He was suspected of being a high-level Hip Sing leader, and having orchestrated the attack on the On Leong Tong, as retaliation for the 1903 killing of Wong Yak Chong. When the trial started, nine of the defendants were charged with first-degree murder, and Worry Charles was charged as an accessory before the fact. If they were convicted, all would be subject to the death penalty. The government called almost 90 witnesses, almost all of whom testified with the help of interpreters. The star witness was Waber Shoi Poi, who claimed to be a member of the Hipsing Tong's ruling council. He said he had been in the room when Worry Charles proposed an attack on the Ong Leongs. One witness testified that Charles said that he would have to do some killing and make the Chinese businessmen so afraid that all of them would join our society, and laid out how he would bring in hatchetmen from New York and pay them and local assassins out of his pocket. The defense put Charles on the stand. He flatly denied having any part in proposing the shooting or paying any of the assailants. He then told his life story, framed as a rags-to-riches odyssey. He recounted how he had been born in China in 1857, then moved to the U.S. at age 11, settling first in San Francisco, where he worked for relatives, before moving to New Orleans and finally Omaha. There he opened his first business with money he had saved. In 1880, he married a white woman he had met in Sunday school, and they had a son. Later, he moved to New York City and opened a laundry. He claimed that he'd been forced to move to Boston after being an informant for the police during a crackdown on gambling in New York's Chinatown. After only two hours of deliberation, the jury found all ten men guilty, and they were sentenced to death. The prospect of a mass execution of ten men shocked Boston and lent support to the anti-death penalty movement that was enjoying some success at the time. Senator James H. Vahey said that if the execution proceeded, it will seem very much like leading animals to the slaughter. The first three of the convicted men were executed in the electric chair at Charlestown State Prison on October 12, 1909. 
Three more were executed three days later, while Wary Charles and the remaining prisoners were moved to death row in Charlestown. While Charles waited on death row, his wife Mary and their son Warren, who was now a Spanish-American war veteran and a New York police officer, lobbied for clemency. Governor Eben Draper would convene the governor's council to consider the request. During the ensuing hearings, many of the witnesses who had testified at the trial changed their stories. In the end, it was not enough to clear Wary Charles' name, but the governor saw fit to commute his sentence to life in prison. He would die in 1915. Today, Chinatown's primary threat isn't a crackdown by racist police agencies, but rather the march of gentrification that threatens to price the descendants of early Chinatown residents out of the neighborhood. However, other Boston neighborhoods have not been so lucky. Just two weeks ago, East Boston was the site of a massive, politically motivated raid by Immigration and Customs Enforcement. While they claimed that they were trying to serve warrants on notorious violent criminals, they swept up undocumented immigrants regardless of any criminal history. The agency's gloating press release after the raid made it clear that it was using the crackdown as retribution against Boston's status as a sanctuary city. Operation Safe City focused on cities and regions where ICE deportation officers are denied access to jails and prisons to interview suspected immigration violators, or jurisdictions where ICE detainers are not honored. Sanctuary jurisdictions that do not honor detainers or allow us access to jails and prisons are shielding criminal aliens from immigration enforcement and creating a magnet for illegal immigration. As a result, ICE is forced to dedicate more resources to conduct at-large arrests in these communities. Another notorious case in the enlightened city of Boston, and under the conduct of federal officials, where deliberately indiscriminate at-large raids target communities for intimidation. Okay, that about wraps it up for today. To learn more about the history of organized crime in Boston, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 078. We'll have links and sources related to each of this week's stories. And of course, we'll have links to information about this week's featured historic site and upcoming event. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please think about writing us a brief review. It's still the best way to help others discover the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next week. <laughs> <laughs>